This is lecture number nine on the major prophets by Robert Bonoy, sticking and continuing with his lectures on Isaiah. Lecture number nine. All right, the rest of the chapter 11, that is verses 11 to 16, is a passage I referred to last quarter. I don't know if you remember that, however. It's a passage that's not easy to interpret. I would be inclined to conclude that these verses describe events that are to take place either just prior to the beginning of the millennium or in the early part of the millennium. In other words, I find it closely related to the first part of the chapter. The details of it are difficult, however. Let's read the passage, then I'll make some comments. I quote, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dryshod. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, who shall be left from Assyria, as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. End quote. Now, I think I mentioned this prophecy earlier in connection with our discussion of the nature of prophetic discourse, that it was not, as far as its character is concerned, history written beforehand. You don't have all the details, and there is a certain enigmatic element in there. And when you read a prophecy like this, I think you see that you wonder exactly how all the details are to be fulfilled. If you look at pages 14 and 15 under Oswald in your sheet, here are his comments. The next to the last paragraph, page 14, which begins, and I quote Oswald, While the general sense of these verses is clear, that comes from page 296, that paragraph in Oswald where he says, While the general sense of these verses is clear, the specifics are not so clear. Is the prophet speaking of the return from Babylon in 539 B.C.? You see, in 11 it says, It should come to pass, the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover his remnant of his people. Is that the return from Babylon in 539? If so, the Messiah has not yet been revealed and could hardly be the ensign around which the people rally. See, verse 12 says, He shall set up an ensign for the nations. If you go back to verse 10, that clearly seems to be the Messiah. Is Isaiah, in fact, speaking of the new Israel, the church, as the reformers maintained, for example, Calvin? Certainly believers were gathered to the Messiah from every part of the world in verse 10, in the fashion reminiscent of chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, that seemed to begin the section with reference to the nations at large. 
Nevertheless, the primary focus of the passage seems to be upon the historical nation of Israel, so that one is led to believe the point is of some great final ingathering of the Jewish people, such as referred to by Paul in Romans chapter 11. And there ends the quote from Oswald. Personally, I'd be inclined to agree with him on that. If that has begun in the contemporary Zionist movement, as many believe, we may look forward with anticipation to its ultimate completion and a turning to God in Christ by the Jewish nation yet in the future. But that hasn't happened yet. Of verse 11, where it says that, quote, He will recover a remnant of his people who shall be led from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros, end quote, and so forth, Oswald says the idea there is completeness. In other words, from all parts of the earth, people are going to return. The Lord will bring them back to his land. So this last paragraph on page 14, Oswald believes purpose is more figurative, attempting to say that God is able to restore his people from everywhere. He takes that as the main idea. On the top of page 15 of your citation page, speaking of verse 12, this verse seems to say, in poetic form, that the preceding verses say in prose, Returnees will come from the entire earth. That's on page 288 of Oswald. And the next paragraph is on verses 13 and 14, also on page 288. Now, George Adam Smith denigrated this picture of enforced submission as being unworthy of the great prophet of peace. You see that is on page 14 and 15. Where it says they will fly, these people of return, will fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west, they will spoil them to the east, they will lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and so forth. Well, about that, George Adam Smith denigrates this picture of enforced submission as being unworthy of the great prophet of peace. However, one should not impose Smith's 19th century A.D. ideas of a mutually agreed-upon cessation of war on the 8th century B.C. prophet. In fact, the idea of peace as a result of a mutually agreement of nations is not a biblical one. The biblical one, and the Isaanic one, that is, preached by Isaiah, is of a peace that results from mutual submission to an overwhelming sovereign not mutually agreed cessation of war between parties. Only when God has defeated his enemies and they have submitted to him is the vision of peace that should be as we read in chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. The difficulty which the Hebrews had was in admitting that they too were enemies of God and needed to submit to him. They, as we, wished to see themselves as darlings of God and they could use God to accomplish their own political purposes. So this is not a picture that Isaiah is projecting here. Rather, he is saying once again that Israel's sin cannot destroy the promises of God to Israel. In a figurative way, he points to a coming time of internal and external safety and security similar to that which they knew unto David, but to be secured by one greater than David. So Oswald is suggesting that you have here Conditions that will come to pass when the Lord brings his people Israel back to the land either prior to or early on in the millennial period. Now, compare that with E.J. Young's material on page 19 and 20 of your citations. Remember, Oswald is premillennial, whereas E.J. Young is amillennial. 
And E.J. Young takes this entire passage as figurative and a description of the spread of the gospel in the present time. The second paragraph there in the middle of page 19 is from page 396 of Young, and he is speaking of verse 12. He says, and I'm quoting him, The Messiah will be a drawing point for the heathen, and through the work of Christian preaching, Christian missionaries, he will draw them unto himself. How important, particularly in this day and age, therefore, that the church send forth to the four corners of the earth missionaries who are to proclaim the truth that apart from the true Messiah, Jesus, there is no salvation. End quote. You see in verse 12, it says, He will set up an ensign to the nations, and that's the Messiah. And he shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. E.J. Young says that is figurative for the spread of the gospel. Of verse 13, he says on page 398, the next paragraph, that 13, quote, The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. He says that that tension between the two kingdoms from the historical period is going to be removed. Now, what does Young say about that? I quote him again. In Christ, all national, sectional, and regional distinctions shall be abolished. And through the figure employed in this verse, we learn that in Christ there is true unity, and a place for all men of whatever race or color, and Christ alone can make them one. I end its quote, that is on page 398. Look at verse 14. I'm quoting Isaiah. They shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west, spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. End quote. Here Young says, and I quote him again, Here is the true unity of the faith in opposition to the hostility of the world. This true unity does not hide itself, infringe itself, but defends itself, expecting attack. It takes the offensive. The enemies of the Messiah must be destroyed, and in the strength of the unity that the Messiah gives the people to fly upon the Philistines, namely a representative of the enemies of God and his church, that's on page 398, in that he says that what Isaiah here is describing cannot, of course, be understood in a literal sense. Rather, he says, here is a beautiful picture of the unity that is the possession of the saints of God obtained by them, not through their own works, but through the blood of Christ and the vigorous act of participation in the work of conquering the enemy world, a conquering which is brought about through the spending of the gospel by missionaries in the constant act of the vigorous, faithful proclamation of the counsel of God to every creature on earth. That's page 20, and that ends E.J. Young's comments. So basically, according to Young, the glorious hope here held out for God's people does not consist in a literal despoilation of nomad Arabs of the desert in order to create a nation of Israel. It rather consists in the blessed task of making the saving power of God known to those who, like the Apostle Paul, had once been persecutors of the church. Our constant prayer should be that the sons of the East will be despoiled, so that, being deprived of false riches and possessions, they may instead have the Christ of God. This picture is of complete reversal of conditions, not to take place in Palestine, even though it says, 
quote, he will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He will set his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people from these places. He says, that is, Young says, this is not to take place in Palestine, but in the greater field of the world, a reversal which would consist in the people of God reaching out to bring all people and make them captive to Christ. Isaiah, Young says, is not here speaking in this verse 16 primarily of a return from the Babylonian exile, though it may be that the thought of such a return lies at the foundation of his prophecy. Now, I think that Oswald would say that that may be some initial harbinger of what is to take place here, but much of this remains yet to be featured. In other words, that is, what happened in 1948 and the rebirth of the nation of Israel may be connected with what we find here and an indication of what we find here is going to come to pass in a more complete way yet in the future. Certainly those that have returned have not returned to Christ, that is, those of Israel who have returned to the land of Palestine have not yet turned to Christ. Oswald says that. What page is that? Uh, well, he says, the primary focus seems to be on the historical nation of Israel, so that one likely points to the same great final ingathering of Jewish people, such as is referred to by Paul in Romans chapter 11. And then he says, if that has begun in the Zionist movement, which was completed in 1948, but begun future to that, he says, if that's begun in the Zionist movement, as many believe, we may look forward with anticipation to an ultimate completion and a returning to God in Christ by the Jewish nation. You'll have a more full realization of it, but he doesn't exclude the possibility that 1948 is some possible initial stage, at least. With Young, you are out of those categories altogether. You are into a spiritual fulfillment in the spread of the gospel, not into the reestablishment of a literal Israel in the land of Palestine. No, Oswald doesn't see this as figurative. He couldn't. Well, he does use the term figurative, however, in this sense, that is, when it says, for example, in verse 11, that the Lord will recover this remnant of his people, and then it mentions names from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamat, what he is saying is, that is, what Oswald sees Isaiah saying is, you need not conclude that people will return only from those specific places and push the literal sense there. Oswald is saying that these places that are mentioned indicate the four corners of the earth. They are figurative of saying that God is going to bring his people back from everywhere. But it's a real bringing back, and it's a coming of Jewish people together to a certain geographic place that we call Palestine. So it's not figurative in that sense, it's only figurative in the sense that the people come from everywhere. Whereas you see Young is saying that this isn't geographical at all, he's saying it's simply a figurative way of speaking of the spread of the gospel and the opposition, then, of the people of God to wickedness and evil wherever it is. So there are two sides there, and I think you have to be very careful about concluding just because Israel returned to the land, you know, like some said, the time of the Gentiles now is over. Well, other people said that during the Six-Day War, they said the same thing, that this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. And other people, 
made a connection with these events to Isaiah's prophecy, and they see a literal fulfillment. But we don't know what's going to happen to the state of Israel in the future. It doesn't seem likely at the moment, but you know there are those Arabs that could push Israel into the sea. You know, theoretically, that could have happened in the past as well, in 1948 and 1967 and 1973. So on the one hand, I think you have to be careful about saying things that happened in 1948 or 1967 or whenever are specifically fulfillments of some specific prophecy. On the other hand, the more positive, I think you can say it's a remarkable thing that in 1948 this nation of Israel was reconstituted. Here is a people that over centuries of time have been dispersed, and attempts have been made to obliterate them, or crush them and wipe them out. Yet in spite of all that, they still exist. They come back and they establish the state, they reconstitute the Hebrew language, they rebuild their culture, and they keep their identity as a people. Now, go back to the Old Testament period. Where are, historically speaking, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, the Moabites, the Philistines, the Ammonites? Where are they today? They're gone. They've disappeared. There's no trace of them left. Yet the Bible has told us that Israel will be dispersed from the land, and sometime in the future God will bring them back to the same land, and we see through the course of history the way these people have kept their identity and, in fact, have reconstituted the state of Israel. I don't think you can minimize the significance of that. You know, a lot of the amillennial interpretation of Scripture was developed during the time when it looked like Israel was all but gone and disappear. They weren't established as a state at that time. So, now that they are reestablished as a state, perhaps the thinking that they never will be really needs to be reconsidered. Now, there are other passages to consider. I think you have to put with this other verses that say that when Israel is in exile, they will cry out to the Lord and turn to the Lord, and then he will bring them back. And we haven't seen that turning and crying out to the Lord yet. It seems like there have been those who have gone back to the land of Israel, but they haven't turned to the Lord. You see, if you go to... Let's see if I can find it. Yes, Deuteronomy chapter 32. No, it's chapter 30. But if you go there, we read the following. It shall come to pass that when all these things come upon thee, that is, all these blessings and curses upon the land of Israel, which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind among all the nations to which the Lord has driven you, and you shall return unto the Lord your God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that then the Lord will turn your captivity and have compassion upon you, and will return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you, and bring you to the land, this is verse 5, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, verse 6, and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. And the Lord will put all these curses on your enemies. End quote. And that again is Deuteronomy chapter 30. Well, you see, there is a reference there about not only return to the land of Israel, but return to the Lord. And we certainly haven't seen the latter part of it, as I have mentioned before, at least not in any great measure. 
And in fact, from what I've heard of Jewish evangelism, there is a greater response among Jewish people to the gospel among the diaspora Jews than there is among those who have returned to Israel. So you know, I think we have to wait further to see the land of Israel turn to Christ. Maybe there will be a great revival in turning to the Lord among Jewish people in the Western world, but then we will anticipate a greater return to Israel. I don't know how all those things will work out. I don't think everything is in place yet. At least that's my own impression. Question, is God going back to working with Jewish people after working with the church all this time? Answer, well, yeah, there's something of that and some truth in that. It seems to me if we go to Romans chapter 11, there's this sequence where God worked in the Old Testament period with the Jewish people, and then when they rejected the Messiah, he turned to the Gentiles. But then the Jews will be provoked to jealousy and come back to the one whom they rejected, and there seems like in that sequence all Israel will be saved at some time. As Paul says it here, it seems like a massive turning of the Jewish people to Christ, but we have not seen that yet. All right, let's move on to chapter 12, which is a song of praise. And in view of all these things, these great things that are going to come to pass, it's a great chapter, a brief one. And I quote, And in that day you shall say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord, even the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, you inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of you. End quote. See, at the end of this section, it speaks of those wonderful things that the Lord will accomplish. There's that brief song of praise in chapter 12, a very beautiful passage. Okay, that's the end of the book of Emmanuel, chapters 7 to 12. Let's go back now to the structure of the book. Remember, chapters 1 to 6 is that section of judgment, blessing, judgment, blessing, judgment, blessing. There are three sections with that alternative judgment and then blessing. And then you have chapters 7 to 12, which we call the book of Emmanuel, with specific historical background that is clear in the early parts, that it's the Syro-Ephraimite War that is being discussed here. The next section is chapters 13 to 23. I'm not going to deal with that, but if you remember when we discussed that structure, chapters 13 to 23 comprises prophecies of judgment against foreign nations. You notice chapter 13 begins right immediately with that. Quote, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, end quote, and you have a prophecy of judgment to come on Babylon, and that goes right through to chapter 23. You have Babylon in chapter 15, you have Moab in 17, the burden of Damascus in 18, Ethiopia 19, and so forth. Prophecies of judgment against foreign nations. Chapters 24 to 27, that's the little section called Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. 
It's a very interesting section that depicts the coming judgment on the ungodly that seems to be global in scope, and then the establishment of God's kingdom and blessing for those who are his. As I said, I'm not going to deal with that section either. That is section chapters 24 to 27. Now, I want to move to chapters 28 to 35, which, if you recall, I mentioned that it seems in many ways to be similar to the book of Emmanuel, the section we've just been discussing. The historical background is not as explicit, but it seems to be generally the same time frame as chapters 7 to 12. So let's turn to chapter 28. As I mentioned, there are similarities to the book of Emmanuel. In the book of Emmanuel, the historical background is clearly presented in chapter 7. When you get to chapter 28, there isn't a clear statement of historical context for this prophecy. You're not told where the message was spoken, but the message seems to be addressed to the nobles, or leaders of the land. Chapter 7, on the other hand, was addressed to the king, King Ahaz specifically. Here we're talking about the nobles, however, the leaders of the land, rather than specifically the king. And when you read down through the chapter, the context suggests, along with some of the statements, that the message may have been delivered at a banquet of the nobles, perhaps, and we'll go into the chapter and see why this is said. Perhaps they celebrated their decision to seek help from Assyria. Remember that in the Syro-Ephraimite threat, they did turn to Assyria and concluded an alliance with Assyria, that seems, possibly, to be the background for this chapter. Now, when you come to the early part of the chapter, I think you see something of the way in which Isaiah presents his message to get a hearing. He doesn't begin with the condemnation of that alliance with Assyria. He begins with attacking the leaders of the northern kingdom, of Ephraim, much like Amos, you remember. When Amos wanted to focus his prophecy on the northern kingdom, he started with four nations— and he came to the cousin nations, and then he came to Judah, and then finally, after he's gotten a hearing, he comes to the focus of his message with the condemnation of the northern kingdom where he is preaching. Well, Isaiah is using the same tactic as Amos. He doesn't start with Judah, but it becomes clear that that is the focus of his message. Notice the first verse where Isaiah says, quote, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, who is like a tempest of hail in a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with a hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trampled under their feet, and the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and like the early fruit before the summer, which, when he that looks at it and sees it, while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. Quote. So he begins with his denunciation of the drunkards of Ephraim, and using figurative language, he speaks of the destruction of Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. He refers to Samaria as, quote, this crown of pride, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower on the head of the fat valleys. End quote. The capital, Samaria, the crown and pride of the people of the northern kingdom, is going to become like a fading flower. That's what he's saying. So evidently, Samaria had not yet fallen, as Isaiah predicts here, is going to happen, 
And that would mean that his prophecy is prior to 721 or 722 when Samaria fell. The nobles of Judah, to whom Isaiah was speaking, would undoubtedly rejoice at that kind of prophecy, to hear that Samaria is going to be destroyed. And as long as Isaiah attacks the northern kingdom, these nobles are ready to listen to him. So he says in verse 2, quote, The Lord has a mighty and strong one, who, like a tempest of hail in a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down the northern kingdom. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trampled under feet, and the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the fat valley, uh, you see that's again Samaria, shall be a fading flower, and like the early fruit before the summer, which when he that looks upon it and sees it, while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. End quote. So he starts with that figurative description of the coming destruction of Samaria. And then in verses 5 and 6, we have a contrast which is drawn to some future time when the Lord will be the crown of glory, not the city of Samaria, but the Lord will be the crown of glory for a remnant of his people. See, so he says in verse 5, and I quote, In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people and for a spirit of justice to him that sits in judgment and for strength to those that turn the battle to the gate. End quote. Not a city, but the Lord himself will be the one who gives victory and judgment to those of his own. He will be their crown of glory at some future time. So, Samaria is going to be destroyed, and then attention is drawn to some future time when not a city, but the Lord will be the crown of glory for the remnant of his people. When you get to verses 7 and 8, there is a sharp transition of thought with verse 7. The King James has a bad translation here, I believe. It says, and I quote here, But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink. End quote. But they also, uh, the Hebrew word here is the gamele, and also these, and that's the way it should be read, and these also. As the NIV says of the New International Version, and I quote here, stagger from wine and reel from beer, end quote. The New English Bible has, quote, these two are addicted to wine, end quote. The Hebrew is clear. It is these that are addicted to wine and beer. The implication is that Isaiah has been talking about the north, and that's okay, but he's also talking to the nobles of the south, and here he turns to them. And he says in verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, but now he says in this verse, but those also stagger from wine and reel from beer. In other words, the people sitting right in front of him are doing the same. He points to these banqueting nobles before him and says, you're as bad a drunkards as those of Ephraim. But these have also erred through wine and through strong drink and are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all the tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. He's addressing that to the people in front of him. Strong language, particularly if he is at some sort of a banquet with these leaders. And he says, your tables are full of vomit. You're drunkards of Judah. Now, you can imagine that that kind of language might arouse some indignation to those that are listening to it and a response. 
in verses 9 to 10 give you the response, and I think what you have in verses 9 to 10 is what these nobles either said or at least what they were thinking about. We quote, Whom shall he teach knowledge? Whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Those that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, end quote. And this is what the nobles are replying to Isaiah's message. And I think the idea is quite clear. These nobles are saying, who do you think you are? Who are you that you think you can teach us something? Whom shall he teach knowledge? Whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And the implication is that he is treating them like little children, lecturing them with his ethical line upon line, precept upon precept. And here's where you have to read this in Hebrew, actually, to really understand the sarcasm of what is being said. And in verse 10, in the Hebrew, it reads like this. Ki sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav, tsair sham, tsair sham. That's the way it reads in Hebrew. Listen to the way the Jerusalem Bible translates this, which is somewhat of a paraphrase, but... I think it gets the essence of what's going on here, particularly from the Hebrew. The Jerusalem Bible says, and I quote, Whom does he think he's lecturing? Whom does he think his message is for? Babies just weaned? Babies just taken from the breast? With his, and then the Jerusalem Bible doesn't even translate this Hebrew, and it sounds like gibberish of a baby. Kisav lesav, sav lesav, kav lekav, kav lefkav, tsair sham, tsair sham. It's as if they are sarcastically saying, who do you think you're treating like infants with your baby talk? There's a note in the Jerusalem Bible which says this, quote, mimicking Isaiah's preaching, which they consider unintelligible with words chosen for their sound value and recalling the babbling of a child. If the words are to be translated at all, they will read, order on order, order on order, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. And that is what the New Jerusalem Bible says. The New Bible Commentary says, quote, The Hebrew of verse 10 is a jingle, almost the equivalent of our derisive blah, blah, blah. That is people talking, but not quite as meaningless. You see, there is a meaning. It is rule upon rule, rule upon rule, line upon line, line upon line, etc. That's the New Bible Commentary. J.B. Phillips says the following, this is the way he translates it, quote, Are we just weaned? Do we have to learn that the law is the law is the law is the law? The rule is the rule is the rule is the rule? Etc. And the Lord goes on and he says, Yes, you do have to learn that because with stuttering lips and foreign tongue will the Lord speak to this people. That is, make nonsense of God's sense and you'll get your fill of it from Assyria. Now, you see, that's what's going on here in verse 11. You make nonsense of God's sense, and you mock this and speak sarcastically about Isaiah's preaching. What does the Lord say in verse 11? For with stammering lips, that's a bad translation of the King James, but with strange lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. The NIV translates it well. The NIV says, Very well then, you're going to make fun of this message? Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. In other words, God has been speaking to them clearly, precept upon precept, line upon line. 
But they make fun of that. They refuse to listen. They mock him. And they make the clear teaching sound like babble. Therefore, what's going to happen? Verse 11. God will give them what sounds like babble in the form of an attack by the Assyrian army, whose speech will be unintelligible to them. So with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people. Then in verses 12 and 13, the rebuke is continued, to whom he said, This is the rest by which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord, the King James says, was, but it should be will be, because it's a vob consecutive with the perfect, so it should say, but the word of the Lord will be unto them, that is, unto these nobles, and then you get a repetition of sav le sav, sav le sav, etc., etc. So the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. So the rebuke has continued. God has given them the opportunity to secure rest and refreshment in following him, trusting in him rather than in Assyria, but they don't want to listen to that. So what Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, is they will hear him speak in another way through the Assyrian invaders who are going to speak a tongue that they are not going to understand. And then the Lord imitates their mockery to represent the unintelligible language of the conqueror. The word of the Lord will be unto them, sav le sav, kav le kav, etc. Well, I see our time is up, and we'll have to pick up here next time. That is the end of lecture number nine on the major prophets by Robert Benoit, again sticking with the prophet Isaiah. Mm -hmm.